Storygram Network. If you would like It's Not About Food podcasts a week earlier and ad-free, please support me on patreon.com forward slash It's Not About Food. For more information about my books, my work, and my body love cards, you can go to my website at itsnotaboutfood.com. Hi, my name is Laura Lee, and this is It's Not About Food. So it's not about food, and it's not about weight. What is it about? Everything else. Because it's never ever about food or weight. Never ever, not even, one time, not ever, ever, ever. Hello, everyone. This is Laura Lee Rourke from It's Not About Food podcast. And today we are talking about the wonderful idea of compassion. And the goddess on the card is looking down at her little deer power animal. And she is got her hand on the deer and her other hand is on her heart. And it is a very compassionate image of being with herself and this little sweet animal. And in the back of the card, this is really what I completely 100% believe. Compassion is a necessary foundation for all healing. When we have compassion for the parts of ourselves that we dislike the most, we can let go of the debilitating shame and self-hatred we have carried for so long and use our compassion to bring love, understanding, and then, if necessary, change. So I just want to say really quickly that for me, my first recovery was with alcohol, and then it was with drugs, and then it was with relationships, and then it was with money. The very last thing that I wanted to look at or do or even thought I had a problem with was my eating disorder. So I was able to tap into that idea of compassion for all of them until I got to the eating disorder. And I realized really for a long time, I had no compassion for myself. I shouldn't have an eating disorder. I was recovered in these other ways. I don't know what was wrong with me. This is ridiculous. Get over yourself, Laura Lee. I had so much shame and so much hatred towards my body and myself. Just the whole thing was so distasteful to me. (laughs) You know, I could understand, I could wrap my head around alcohol and drugs and even how I dealt with relationships and how I dealt with money. But the eating disorder, I just felt like, you know, how stupid do you have to be that you don't know how to eat? And of course, I did know how to eat and I did know how to trust my body, but it had been a long time since I was a baby that I was able to do those two things. And I had so much misinformation about it too. I'm so happy to have on our show today, Desiree, what a beautiful name and a beautiful person and a beautiful soul. And she's going to talk about her sort of journey to learn what compassion is and how she works with that in her life. And also just what up with her these days. Hello, Desiree. Take it away. 
Hi, thank you so much for having me on your show. I've listened to your podcast for quite a while now, and I have the It's Not About Food Workbook, and it's all highlighted and marked up. <laughs> and I miss going to groups, so I should come back to a group one day when yeah, you're facilitating. It's pretty fun. Yeah, I'm doing well in my recovery. We had a little chat a few days ago, and we were talking about... When you've been in recovery for a while, you start to really wonder, okay, where is that line that you step over to where I'm recovered? And if that's possible. And I loved your response. You were like, it's possible. You didn't even skip a beat. You're like, yes, it's possible. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay. So now I'm going to sit with that for a few days. But When I was going through recovery, my first few weeks, months into the recovery process, I read this really daunting statistic that said full recovery from an eating disorder can take four to seven years. And I remember like a few weeks in, I was like, wow, that seems like forever. It does. And and now that it's four years, I'm like, okay, I hit that minimum mark. Am I recovered yet? (laughs) Yeah. It's always hard in group when I have people say, how long did it take you to recover? And I go, a solid five years before I felt okay about my body and what I ate and how I thought about myself. There was still lots to do recovering from the society I lived in, but I was okay. wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. Yeah, and you bring up such a good point. I remember on that same note, one of my breakthrough moments when I was in residential treatment was I was sitting with my therapist and it was in the first initial few weeks and it was still in a time where I was not sure that I wanted to be there. I was not there for fully for myself. It was more because people had placed boundaries around my behavior and I kept telling my therapist, because you have to get like lots of medical checkups before you go and like doctor's appointments and nothing really had come up physically that was wrong with me. And I would just throw that in my therapist's face. Like there's nothing physically wrong with me. There's nothing physically wrong with me. I don't deserve to be here. There's a reason for me to be here. And my therapist would just be like, how are you in your mind? (laughs) Yeah. How are you in your mind though? There is no test. (laughs) I was like oh my mind yeah that's a big mess (laughs) (laughs) that's so great what a great answer she had yeah and so what it links into what you were saying because you can overcome the physical behavior but that doesn't mean you're recovered because I still struggle with body dysmorphia and like looking at my body in a compassionate way. And do you get those moments of pure grace of where you are okay with your body and are okay with how you look or how your body's working these days? So physically, just from how I feel my body looks, sometimes I'll be like, I like this about myself, but I'll never love that about myself. And so for me, 
I remember one of the exercises they had asked me to do in residential treatment. It was in PHP, which is when you step down, it's partial hospitalization. So you're entering into the world on your own, but you're still kind of connected to residential. And they had full length mirrors in there and the little cabin where we had to live. And they said, Desiree, what you need to do is you need to get completely naked and look in the mirror and every part of your body that you don't like, you just put a post-it note on it in the mirror and write something positive about it. And to me, that was mortifying. I still have not done that to this day. I love body positivity. I think it's really helpful for some people, but I'm definitely more of like the body neutrality kind of person. Can I be okay with what my body is? and Mourning the fantasy body, huge. That was huge for me. Like accepting that this is my body. For one, it might never look better according to society standards. But for two, it also probably is going to look worse. And can you accept that? <laughs> it's going to get older. That? Exactly. Because I'm, I'm not as young as I used to be too. And I'm, I'm getting older. It's a lot. It's a lot. And <laughs> yeah. Do you have any suggestions, any helpful tips? I read a thing the other day about, I do, I have a lot of stuff about this, but about, is that a dream body if it's a nightmare to try to keep it? <laughs> went, oh my God, so true. Because if I took the body that I have and wanted it to be shorter and I don't know, whatever. I wanted it to be different than how it is genetically coded and would have to have a strict lifestyle that I would rebel against eventually. It wouldn't be possible. If I just thought of another body that I wanted to be like, I don't build muscle mass so much, you know, I'm an ectomorph, so whatever. So I just feel like I had to give up this image of myself as a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> you know, that, that's what I wanted to look like, really. And uh, when I got down to it, so I had to give that up because I would have had to jump through so many hoops that I wouldn't have a life, which is what happened. But I also, I love that they had you look in this mirror and look at yourself naked. Now that's mirror work. And I've always, it's one of the biggest changes for me personally, was it, it took a year to be able to take off my clothes. So I would look in my eyes for a really long time, months, and then months would go by and I would look at myself fully clothed and see, oh, isn't that interesting? I am big here, I'm small here, or I'm flat here, or I'm hairy there or whatever. Try to describe it like I was describing I don't know, a piece of art or something. And then at some point was able to take off a few things and stand in my underwear and then stand completely naked until I was comfortable with what I looked like. So I could just walk around my house naked, even by myself. I wouldn't let myself do that because I was so ashamed of my body. But it did take a really long time. And the people who first started doing that, that I heard about in the 70s, was when women were 
fighting for their rights, have to fight again, I guess, but fighting for their rights when the brawl burning was happening. And there was just a lot of upheaval. Women were really demanding that they be paid the same and have jobs and not just have one thing. The feminist movement in the New York area that had a room that was all mirrors. And you went to this group and the group, this was one of the things you did is you stood in that room and you couldn't come out until you got to a neutral place. I was like, well, I would have been in there for a year, (laughs) but you were supported by all the other women and they were all doing it. And so I don't think it took a year, but it probably took a few hours of them in there by themselves, just going through this upheaval inside of themselves about it and being supported by the women outside of the group saying, you're okay. You look great. You look beautiful. I love your thighs. I think your feet are beautiful. Your hair looks fantastic. (laughs) So it's sort of like we have to do that because we're judged so harshly otherwise. And we have to not hear that voice anymore or also have our own voice. It's so true. And I appreciate everything you're saying. And it's clear that I have a lot of work to do still. (laughs) We (laughs) all do. (laughs) I think that place of, I'm still at a stage of turn the shower on, let the mirror get steamed up, take off my clothes, jump in the shower. (laughs) So you don't have to see anything. And then that also of course, spills into intimacy and relationships and it just, it's all connected. It is. And I think about the one thing is to go slow, start with your eyes and then look at your face and your hair and then your neck and then your shoulders. You just slowly go down the body until you hit like the jackpot of your hatred (laughs) and then stay there for a really long time until, okay, well, that's what that looks like. Huh? Interesting. And we don't have this crowd of women around us going, I don't know what your problem is. You look beautiful. We don't have that. We just have our own crazy head of all the stuff that we've been told all this time and stuff we've learned and stuff we've picked up. You have all of that. And then you get to this more real place, more heart and soul and acceptance and love and compassion place. But it does take a while. It does. I saw something the other day about how those voices of negativity and shame, that they're not necessarily even our own thoughts. They're not our own authentic thoughts. They're just a product of this culture that we've been raised in. If you would like to have a weekly newsletter that has some information about recovery or what people are doing in the world or what I'm doing in the world and just information about how to recover and what to do and how do we have faith and trust and love and openness to our own selves, you can go to my website at itsnotaboutfood.com. Storygram Network. Welcome to One Media, One Media. I'm... When you're whining with nurses. It's a place I like to call The Bleed. My name is Laura Lee, and this is It's Not About Food. Storygram Network. 
I joined Beyond Hunger about three years ago after my own eating disorder recovery. I've been with the Peer Ed program for over a year. I have been a peer educator for a few weeks now. Beyond Hunger is an amazing organization in which high schoolers like me get to go to schools across the Bay Area and educate teens and students on mental health, body image, intuitive eating. I joined because it really helps people. I joined the program because I believe that the information we provide people my age is very important. Beyond Hunger has allowed me to connect with the youth in my community and reaffirm to myself what I know is true. It has given me an opportunity to educate others and inform others around my age. Um, and I just think it's a really wonderful program. Because I want to teach other teens what I never learned. Appreciating your body through its ups and downs, navigating di diet culture, and learning about intuitive emotions and hunger. And I felt that it was super important to continue to make change in the community. My name is Laura Lee Rourke, and I am one of the founders of Beyond Hunger. My business partner, Carol Normandy, and I founded it in 1988. But for the last 25 years, we've been going into schools and talking about the issue of eating disorders and body hatred. We um, train young women to go in with us, peer to peer, student to student, and it is a wonderful program. Please give generously. Thank you. I say that all the time, like watching my little granddaughter, she's not so little anymore, but when she was little, I stood her up on the sink so she could see her body and her, the biggest grin on her face when she saw herself. And it was like she waved at herself like she was seeing a friend. And that's what it is. There it is. She had no body shame. She never heard anybody's shame. She never thought about that. She just saw, is this what I look like? Oh my God, it's pretty great, you know? And, and I just stood with her and smiled back at her. And I thought, when is she going to lose this? Because I knew it would happen. And of course it did. Not because of her parents, my son and daughter-in-law, not because of me, not because of anybody. It's just she walked out into the culture and she got hit by all these messages. So you're right. We didn't come here going, oh my God, I can't believe how big my thighs are. <laughs> we thought, oh, this is fabulous. I have this arm. I have this leg. Wow. That's a powerful thought. Because there is some amount of shame and self-guilt for having these thoughts and have, having an eating disorder in the first place. Like, why did it, is this my fault? And create a doorway for compassion yes yes exactly and it's like I can have compassion for myself that I think these things because I learned how to tie my shoes I also learned my body was wrong just as a little girl you're not okay and unless you jump through a million hoops you're not going to be okay yeah so had compassion for that little person yeah that's it's super intense. I was just walking through, I think it was Sephora. It was either Sephora or Ulta the other day. And there was a big ad for a new product. I don't remember what product, but the tagline for to sell it was the body resolution. <laughs> and I was like, really? If you can't be more like obvious than trying to say that our bodies are a problem to be solved, like... What's the resolution? Yeah, buy their product. But it's just like, how many other women and men pass by that and just thought about the product and not like the marketing tactic behind it? 
I'm hopeful that there are a lot of people out there that have their eyes open. I'm hopeful too. And I also know that there was times in my life I wouldn't have gotten like, wait, what does that mean? I would have just bought that product. But I had to be taught. I had to be awakened. I had to like hear something else. And then because it was true, it like zinged into myself and I had to know other stuff about it. Exactly. It's probably in the triple digits, maybe four digit numbers, how many dollars I've spent on creams and lotions and products. Many years ago, Naomi Wolf wrote a book that is still relevant today, The Beauty Myth of how many products she called them magic potions <laughs> we are sold. And especially as we get older, we're a source of income for these companies. So there's the war on aging. Like, how's anyone going to win that war <laughs> unless we die? <laughs> I, exactly. <laughs> and that's something I'm personally going through right now because I'm, you know, in my late 30s. I don't know if I want to have kids. I'm feeling the pressure. I'm having back issues. <laughs> like I didn't do anything. I just woke up one morning and my lower back was thrown out. <laughs> and then I'm still in conjunction with having to accept gracefully, hopefully, that I am aging. I'm still free. <laughs> and I just feel like the work is never over. It is and it isn't. I just recently got back from Spain. And one of the things I did in Spain was go to a town called Sevilla. And it's an impossible town to drive around in. So you have to walk everywhere. If you're staying downtown, don't even think about having a car because there's no parking. Then there's no streets to drive on. I mean, there's streets, but everybody's in the streets. So you have to go around all the <laughs> tourists. And so we would get up in the morning and go out and we'd stay out all day and we'd come back and just fall into bed. And the Streets are either concrete or cobblestone or marble. And so very hard to walk on all day. And I would come home and immediately I would start to think, this is because you're old. This is because you didn't work out enough before you got here. This is because you didn't practice walking a million miles on marble. You know, I started to have that kind of a little ticker tape across my brain the difference is I don't believe it. I just go, yeah, I think probably anybody is probably tired of walking for eight hours on marble. <laughs> I think it's okay. <laughs> you know, so I, I love that. yeah, I just, I'm never going to get rid of the thoughts because I'm not going to get a lobotomy unless I get a stroke or I die. Those thoughts are there. They're just there. But I don't have to believe them anymore. And I don't. And they stop. If I don't attach, they just keep going until the next thought is, I'm okay, just put on your jammies, go to bed. <laughs> I love that. It reminds me of self-mothering. Yes. Yes, exactly. It is self-parenting. It's like, put your feet up on a wall, let the blood run down into your body instead of all piling in your feet and do some stretching and go to bed, get a good night's sleep and tomorrow's another day. So I think it does stop and it also 
doesn't have me by the throat anymore at all. That's the difference is knowing that it doesn't have that strong hold on you. I remember when I did not know until I was 32 years old, my first week of residential treatment, I had never been told that the thoughts that we have are not necessarily our own. That was mind shattering for me. It's like, well, whose are they brainwashing? You've been brainwashed since you were a child, especially a little girl child. Yeah, it is more challenging, I think. So you told me something the other day that I was so impressed with that you're doing YouTube. I'm on TikTok. TikTok. I just love it so much. (laughs) Yes. So I believe my handle is at Desiree, either dot or underscore Michelle with two E's at the end. You're going to have to send me, send me this so I can put it on the show and a bio as well. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Yeah, I talked a lot about my recovery journey. Before I went to residential treatment, you better believe that I spent almost every waking hour Googling everything I could about what it was going to be like to be in residential treatment. And there was very little, I found a few blogs, but nothing really substantial. Mostly I just wanted to know the things you're not supposed to know. What are they going to make me eat? Are they going to make me eat a panini? Like I just, wanted, <laughs> I just wanted to know what I was getting into. Yeah. But when I couldn't find the resources, I just jumped in a little bit blind. Luckily it was a good outcome, but now I talk about my experience, you know, every treatment center is completely different. Everybody has experience and some people have negative experiences because treatment centers are not all perfect. And there are some people that have to go to many different treatment centers. Over and um, over and over. Exactly. And I just lucked out because I went to a good center. I was with good fellow patients and I had a good therapist and all timing but I do talk about experience I like the the number one thing that got me to the place I am now is structure in particular peeing with the door open (laughs) that was like so many levels wow girl you go (laughs) so great yeah you know we each have our little thing like oh I can never do this or I can never do that And you met that challenge and went through it. So fabulous. But to be on TikTok, that is such a level of self-worth and self-okayness in order to do that, I think, to do it. It's definitely, I've had my off days because I've committed to not using filters, not using like the big filters. But it's the people that comment and have insight that really inspire me because I know from experience that having an eating disorder is extremely secretive. You carry it around inside of you. You don't talk about it. Nobody is allowed to know it's your thing. So not a lot of people comment, but I know for every person that comments, there's so many other people that are resonating 
And it's so special when people do because recovering in and of itself is already hard enough. But when you make the decision to recover out loud, that is very transformative. It is. It's so true. So how did you jump from just being a person that went to work and had a relationship and was trying to stay recovered and all the falls in the air that you were already handling to, I think I'll do a TikTok. How did that like little bridge happen? Um, I was a social media manager already for my job and working in communications. And I started on Instagram. I'm not a fan of Instagram. And I just jumped to TikTok and I started making videos about nebulous things like my cat and my horses and things not so deep, but people had a response. And then it was just like little by little, like I'm going to make a video about an authentic feeling that I had that wasn't related to the eating disorder. Or I'm going to make a video about the way that I challenged something. And then one day I was just like, you know what? I'm going to start a video and I'm going to say, hi, my name is Desiree. I talk about being in recovery from an eating disorder. And if that's interesting to you, give me a like and a follow. And I got a lot of engagement. Wow. And I was like, okay. To me, it was like, there's a need here. People want to hear this. And as long as people want to hear it, I'm going to talk about it. And until the culture changes, they want to hear it. Because nobody, I can't say nobody, but it's not talked about in this way. It's incredible to me. And it's incredibly challenging on the TikTok platform as well. Because unfortunately, there is a lot of pro eating disorder content. And so the algorithm has to be really careful. So I would say about 25% of my videos, even though they are pro recovery, they get put into review or taken down. So I'm just like, I'm just going to keep doing this. If my account gets, I'll just start over from the beginning. But so not only are we not talking about it because of the stigma against it, but these algorithms, obviously they're protecting people, which is great, but it's hard to talk about on a technical level as well. Yeah. And I know that during the lockdown, a lot of my teenage clients and the students I would meet with about eating disorders, they were getting a lot of horrible information. A lot of stuff was getting through. And without any recourse, all of a sudden, they would be saying these really weird things that I'd be like, you know, that's really not true. If you just only eat yogurt, that's a complete meal. That's not true. (laughs) Oh, I saw it on TikTok. It'd be like, no. Luckily, I'm not on that side of TikTok, but I know it exists and it's terrifying. And I remember one of the followers I got, generally, if people post videos and content, I'll follow someone back because it's like about community for me and I want to make friends too. And so I'll go and check out everyone that follows me. And if they're not a creepy looking gentlemen, I'll generally follow them back. (laughs) And I remember one time I went to a profile and it was like a 12-year-old girl. And I was like, okay, now I 
feel like I have to set an example. Now I feel like I have to like level up. I agree. The amount of influence that social media has is just incredible. And so that's why I tell people, talk about it. If you're comfortable recovering out loud, talk about it. Talk about it. Like two or three people in your life or nobody in your life that you talk to except for yourself. <laughs> you know, it just, I really noticed when, again, with the lockdown, how much I missed having my groups in person because there was just such a comfort and a, support and having beating hearts in the room. And we all know what we're talking about. We all know what it's like to eat a frozen cake. We all know what it's like to... Oh my gosh. Trauma, (laughs) trauma, trauma. Yeah. So I can't tell you how glad I am that you're doing this and then that you're doing the work that you're doing as well. Like aside from your own recovery and your own navigating your life, but also the work that you're doing is phenomenal. Yes, I support survivors of sexual assaults at Verity. So they're Sonoma County's Soul Rape Crisis Healing and Trauma Center. So I do have to manage the vicarious trauma from the work I do. Luckily, the work environment is amazing and it's just very supportive support each other. And it's beautiful work. It's rewarding work, but it's really challenging. It is. But you guys have a support system within yourselves, right? With each other in the workplace, which is not all workplaces have that. Yeah. So there's this sentiment going around where if your work says that you're like a family, that that's toxic because, (laughs) you know, because that's just capitalism trying to keep you working. And to to some extent, I do agree with that, but I do believe that it is like a family. I feel like you have to be able to rely on your teammates and to do the hard work. You have to be able to trust somebody enough to come up to them and say, hey, I just had a really hard case. I really need to say, can we like talk about it? And I feel like I can do that. And I feel like I can talk about it because of all of the experience I've had five years now of therapy, learning to talk about hard things with recovery from the disorder. Yeah. Having to talk about things, getting it out into the world, laying it out on the table so it's not festering inside. And I know that Beyond Hunger for the longest time until we closed our big office was my family, but it was a functional family. <laughs> it was a family you could talk about things. My gosh, your work family could be more functional than your actual family. Absolutely. You know, I could say things to a fellow group leader that I would never say to somebody in my family because everybody would get butt hurt about anything I said. So <laughs> I just didn't say it. <laughs> We could do an entire other podcast about family dynamics when you're recovering. Oh my God, it's a great, I'm going to have you on again for that reason alone, if not more reasons. So is there anything that you would like to put out in the world? You have a little bit of a platform here that you could give somebody some words of wisdom if they're like, oh no, I have to go to treatment. I don't want to, and I don't want to have to eat a sandwich. All I'm going to say is that I don't talk about where I went to recovery unless someone specifically asks me, but I did go to recovery in Maui. And I remember 
lying on the beach the night, like 12 hours before going to residential treatment. And my partner was standing up and I was laying on the beach and I just remember taking off my sunglasses and looking at him and being like, what if this isn't for me? What if I can't do it? And it was, it's really interesting looking back now because I had no faith in myself to do this. Oh, yeah. But I did. I'm so glad you just said that. Yeah. Where would you have gotten that faith? You didn't have it. I didn't have it. I like to describe it as I was standing on the edge of a cliff. Yeah. And I just had to jump. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if there was somebody that was going to catch me. But I knew that turning back was not an option. I had run out of different ways to go. I had tried everything that I could have possibly done. And I just knew that I was like, hey, I'm going to do this. If it doesn't work, fine. If it works, fine. But I'm, I don't know what's going to happen. If I go here and I recover, that's great. If I go here and I don't recover, whatever. I was not connected to a outcome. In fact, I was probably more negative leaning. I was like, oh, I'm too far gone. Which, of course, you were not. I was not, but I needed that structure and support and to be held in a safe space to learn that. And so I think being unattached to any results and being unattached to recovery has to look like this is what helped me. And then also being very realistic about knowing that the minute you leave, you're not recovered. There's still a lot of work. And then that's when I met you and the PTE group. And it's just been a journey. So I guess if I had a message, it would be Just know that recovery is for everyone. Yeah, and recovery is completely possible. And sometimes it takes a long time and sometimes it doesn't. And some stuff that you think, oh, I'll never get rid of this. Then you notice six months later, oh, I didn't even think about that anymore. It's truly, it's a journey. It's worth it. I love that I was able to go to a cafe yesterday sit down with my latte and order an egg and cheese croissant. And I didn't even have a single thought about, no, you shouldn't order that. I just ordered it. It's like life goes on. And I'm so grateful that I gave recovery a chance. I love that. It's just the normal thing that people can do. Again, traveling makes me realize that people eat all the time everywhere. (laughs) Then they eat a lot of pasta or they eat a bread or they eat a whatever and they're okay. They're okay. They're not like having to spend two hours in the gym after they whatever, you know, went to dinner at 10 o'clock at night. They're okay with it. It's just my brainwashing that says, oh, and I don't listen to it anymore. I just don't. Would you read the bottom of the card today? Today I will practice meeting each part of myself with compassion. When I feel critical of myself or others, I will consciously choose again to see the situation through the eyes of loving compassion. Oh, thank you so much. What a wonderful show this is. And I really, really am so grateful for your recovery, for knowing you, and also for having you on the show. It's going to help so many people. 
Thank you so much. I had a great time and I always love chatting with you. Good. Okay. So we'll talk later and yeah. So take care of yourself. Thank you for listening. You can find me on all the social medias at It's Not About Food. And if you would like to get the show a week early and ad free, you can become a member at Patreon. Search It's Not About Food podcast. Thanks so much.